This episode is brought to you by the International Parking and Mobility Institute, the world's largest association of professionals in parking, transportation, and mobility. Learn more at parking-mobility.org. Hello and welcome to The Parking Podcast, the podcast where we talk about the $100 billion parking industry and the people that make it go. I'm your host, Isaiah Mal, and this is The Parking Podcast. Welcome back to another episode of The Parking Podcast. With us today is the Executive Director of Transportation Services for Stanford University, Brian Shaw. How are you doing today, Brian? I'm doing great, Isaiah. Glad to be here. I was going to say, I remember the first time I heard you speak, it was, uh, you were talking about transportation, transportation demand management. And I was blown away because this was, oh, I don't know, nine, 10 years ago. And you were talking about stuff then that we're just now starting to see the last mile of, uh, you know, the different mobility options and, and carpooling and ride matching services. And again, just a great speaker. Love that you joined the podcast. And before we begin, I guess, just tell listeners, how'd you get into this crazy industry? Well, I think like everybody else, I, I fell into it. It certainly wasn't what I thought I would be doing if you asked a, a young Brian back 30 something years ago. But, you know, I've always had a transportation interest. Even when I was a kid, I saw how in LA, the traffic and the air, air pollution was a problem and thought there's got to be a better way of running a city from this standpoint and fell into interest in transportation in college, did some work there studied it in graduate school. But I think what really drove me is I had, I had health problems related to ozone pollution when I was a kid. I literally couldn't play outside in the summertime. I'd get sick and have to go inside. And, and I think that's always kind of been in the back of my mind in terms of what's influenced what I've done. And being in TDM for a long time, I realized that the money really isn't parking and the, the ability to fund programs is out of parking. And therefore, uh, I've realized the blending between parking and, and TDM is, is really where you're able to influence travel behavior and get policy change and, and try to create an environment where people are able to have choices in how they get around and minimize the impacts of those choices upon everybody else. And I found a nice niche in doing that at universities, and I hope I've left them better, and I hope I'm making Stanford a better place by, by having that mindset and that experience. Man, that, that's sad. The the background of that. I, I know my I have a brother that lives in in China in like this big manufacturing city, and he's got three little kids, and and they mentioned they kind of have to limit how long they play outside because the the pollution's so bad. I'm like, I can't imagine you know living in a, an area like that because I live in Chattanooga with the mountains and man. Well, Los Angeles in the '70s when I was a kid, it was like China is today, and there were days when you were told not to play outside and. Luckily, it's not as bad anymore. That's great. But at the same time, there's other problems that come from having everybody need to drive everywhere all the time beyond just the environmental impact. So, you know, I think I was maybe uh, uh, scarred for life (laughs) in some ways back then, but I hope I've helped other people achieve their goals and and make their lives a little better by giving them options that um, maybe if I wasn't pushing so hard in this space, they, they may not have had. So, um, you know, childhood trauma maybe adds up to a better result in a, as an adult, I hope. Uh, I don't have these health problems today. You know, I'm kind of a big guy. I've outgrown them, but they're in the back of my mind all the time. You also practice what you preach because I remember this presentation eight or nine years ago that you said you do not drive a car. You do not own a car. I guess, is that still the case? Are you still carless? 
I stopped owning or leasing a car over 10 years ago. I had a Prius, uh, which I love that car. It was, it was a computer with tires. It was a great vehicle. I sold it at a profit 10 years ago, believe it or not. But since that time, I haven't owned or, or leased a car. Now, I do drive. I have a driver's license. I'm not against driving. Uh, I do uh, rent cars. I use Zipcar, car sharing, and of course, transit. And, and now the, the uh, Ubers and Lyfts of the world. Uh, as well to get around biking and walking, but I don't I don't miss having a car. I don't miss the challenges of uh, needing to keep it in a state of repair and having to park it. Certainly is a challenge where I live in San Francisco. Hey, now you might offend some of our listeners. Oh well, you know it's uh, it's a challenge to park in San Francisco. <laughs> Just kidding. And I think anybody who uh, who has to live or work in this city would would agree. And so, um, and sure. it's sort of ironic. I, I we just bought a place in the city. And it came with a parking space and we now lease it out to someone. We don't even use it ourselves. But I, I think it's something that if you can you go carless or, or, or not own a car, give it a shot or maybe reduce your cars in your household. You know, vehicles are very expensive to own and operate. And in some cases, like where I live, to park. And so if you can minimize that expense on your household, it's a, it's a good thing. I think it was initially difficult. Now I've got the ability to help other people understand how to do this and, and learn from it. And, uh, you know, I'm happy to do that. But I don't, I don't expect everyone to be able to do that. And I don't judge folks if they need to have cars. That's really not what I'm about. But, you know, if I can help folks uh, change how they make use of their vehicles, I'm, I'm happy to do that. No, that's great. I, yeah, I remember that from your presentation. And then the other one, you talked about kind of the history of carpooling. You talked about the oil embargoes of the 70s. And then you talked about what I did not know is kind of uh, the, the big boom in carpooling was actually World War II. You know, we need the, the rationing of, of gas and rubber. And so there was a big push by the government to get people to carpool. And I remember one actual kind of propaganda sign from the U.S. government was this. I don't know if you could explain it, if you remember what I'm talking about, but it was a picture of a, someone driving in, in Adolf Hitler's in the passenger seat. And it was when you ride alone, you're riding with Hitler, kind of guilting people into thinking about carpooling because we needed those rations. That's probably the most extreme form of TDM marketing I've ever seen. Yeah, no kidding. There's been nothing approaching that since, and, and I think that's probably a good thing. But you know, back in the you know, World War II time, the need to ration fuel and tires and the materials you know, that were needed for the war effort you know, was of paramount importance uh, to, to the U.S. government. And so they developed these sort of guilt-inducing propaganda materials, as you said, that we're trying to tell people, look, you know, if you don't need to drive, don't. And if you do have to drive, you know, give someone a ride uh, so that we can, you know, consolidate the materials we need to help the troops overseas, you know, win, win this fight against fascism. And, you know, I haven't seen anything that extreme uh, again, and hopefully that never comes to pass. But, you know, we did see during World War II the highest percentage use of transit in the country's history, uh, and arguably some of this uh, uh, marketing uh, that was going on by the U.S. government was a, a big part of that, as well as people's desire to help with the war effort. We take a much softer approach on our marketing at Stanford. Uh, if, if you ever get a chance to look at our materials online, you know they're they're much they're not as severe as as what we've just talked about. But the need to uh, incentivize people, the need to uh, make sure they're aware of their options and to 
help them feel good about making those changes is still part of the, the TDM ethos. And it arguably started with this need that the government had 75 years ago to, to help people uh, change their driving behavior. Yeah. I just, you know, you just think that's carpooling. That was something kind of, you know, newer, but no, yeah, this is back predating World War II. So that was interesting tidbit there. Thanks for the history. But yeah, speaking of what you're talking about with your marketing initiatives at Stanford, I remember when you were running for the IPMI board, you talked about this program where you've been able to keep peak hour trips under some sort of cap for 20 years or so. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so it's, it's a unique uh, set of conditions that Stanford operates under. We have what's called a general use permit or GUP, you know, planners, we love our acronyms. And that uh, device allows Stanford to build uh, housing, build uh, academic square feet, as well as a, a limited number of parking spaces. And we are allowed to do that as long as we do certain uh, conditions or we meet certain conditions that uh, the permit requires us to do. And one of those is to have no additional peak hour commute trips coming to and from the campus. That's measured twice a year uh, by the county. And we have uh, either achieved that, that goal or we've used some credits to help us get under that goal. Uh, we've met that goal every year. That permit's been in place since the early 2000s. And, and it's in large part because of the TDM programs that we do, the fact we charge for parking, and that we incentivize people to use different travel modes. We also try to encourage people to travel outside those peak hours, you know, come in early or come in later. And even and what's interesting now, what's really helping us uh, keep that goal uh, in place is the ability for people to work remotely to work from home, to work from three remote work centers that we set up in the region in San Francisco and the East Bay and in uh, the South Bay in San Jose. That, you know, even if people just do that once a week, that's a 20% reduction in their trips. That, that goes a long way. I'm actually working today from one of our remote work centers in San Francisco. So we've keep adding to our repertoire as technology allows and as policies change and it's a huge smorgasbord of, of programs and services that the university provides, a number of them through my department, that's helped us meet this goal. And we're pretty confident we can keep doing that uh, as the years go on. Yeah, I remember when I first got into the parking industry, you, from an outsider, you think it's get as many cars as you can, make as much money as you can, operators, cities, universities. But well, what I found out quickly is that that's not the case. In a lot of cities, a lot of universities, their goal is to get people from not parking in the garages by incentivizing them not to drive, you know, whether it's universities, fresh freshmen can't drive or can't park or can't have a car on campus or cities doing the, what's the shoot, you know, if the, if the employer is going to pay for monthly parking and you choose not to have that, you can get a payment for that instead. But I thought that was pretty interesting that it's, it's not all get as many cars as you can. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. Certainly at, at a number of universities like Stanford and some of the others I've, I've worked at and worked with over the years, I think it's growingly becoming the case in urban environments and in cities uh, where there just isn't enough parking available and the congestion that trying to have everybody drive and park causes. Uh, I think that's part of the issue. And I think now we've got so many options that are, that are feasible for people to use, like the TNCs, the Ubers and Lyfts, and now these micro-mobility devices like the scooters and the bikes and that sort of thing. And the ability for transit to be easier to use through apps and, and knowing how to plan your trip and how to link it together and 
universal access cards like the Clipper card we have here in the Bay Area. I think all that's played into this idea that, that it's not just about parking as many cars as you can. Uh, it's got to be a, a multifaceted, multimodal type of situation. You know, parking is expensive in certain cases. Uh, it, it can only be provided to a certain level. And, and certainly what we have at Stanford is, is literally a cap on how much parking we can actually have from a supply standpoint. So we, we can't uh, park our way out of our travel needs. We have to look at other options and arguably uh, similar campuses and, and city environments. You know, they've got similar constraints, whether it's regulatory like it is for us or it really just may be a space issue. There just simply may not be enough room uh, to have all these uh, parking spaces that might otherwise be needed. So, yeah, you've got to become nimble. You've got to become open to uh, these other options that are out there in terms of, of uh, carpooling, van pooling, transit, car sharing, all that sort of thing. Really, I think, to be an effective parking and transportation operator moving in you know, now into the 21st century, it's, it's really changed. And I've seen it even with the private providers similar to the ones you, you've worked with, Isaiah, where you know, they've become multifaceted and they've embraced this and they've, they're trying to provide their clients with a broader set of programs and services. And I'm, I'm super happy to see that because it makes it easier for me to define the services that we need at Stanford and, and not to be sort of this outlier, but really to be part of a, a growing community that's in the same kind of space and has the same kind of needs. No, very, very well said. And let's talk about the cars that you, you do park. So I read recently that you guys moved to kind of gateless garages. I don't know if that's frictionless, gateless, what you want to call it, but tell us about that transition. Sure. Well, we're fortunate that at Stanford, for the most part, it's been a gateless or frictionless environment. You know, we're nicknamed the farm. You probably hear that when you watch a Stanford football or basketball game on TV. They always say, from the farm, you know, and, and we kind of had this, this uh, mindset that we were not a, an urban environment, that we were a different sort of place. And that led to really operating parking in, uh, in, a, in a non-urban type of way without the security gates and things like that. And so we've always been that way, but what we really didn't have is a, is a way to have data about our, our services. It was just, you know, we had to literally send people out in orange vests and clipboards and clickers and golf carts to know what was going on in our system. It was completely data-free. And, and in the 21st century, you really can't operate that way effectively. So we looked at a way to, to bring a data process into our parking system without changing really the nature of it, of being frictionless or gateless. And, and that really got us to having a license plate recognition-based permitting and uh, having an online sales process and, and mobile-enabled sales process that, you know, we use the car's license plate as the credential. Arguably, we're more frictionless now than we were before because uh, you don't even have to get a credential now to park at Stanford. Your car is the credential by having a license plate. So we were doing this maybe by accident in the past, but now it's really a purposeful decision to maintain a, a frictionless, gateless environment for our folks who choose to drive and, and park on our campus. And it's been pretty well received. There's still some bugs we're working out. There's some nuanced cases that have to be worked through. Uh, but for the most part, folks like the fact that they literally can go on their computer or their mobile device and buy their permit and they're done. And there's never a need to wait for in line for a permit or have to go pick it up or any of that. That's long gone now at, at Stanford. Is there like a, a pay station to, or something to pay in the garage or you've eliminated that altogether? Is it all kind of pay on an app or pay in advance? Yeah, we're still needing field hardware. 
we are reducing the number of uh, physical meters that we have, mainly because they keep taking those spaces away from me and closing those streets off to cars or putting buildings in the vicinity of them. So uh, we haven't added a meter in the five years I've been at Stanford. But what we are doing is, is making use of pay stations and probably we'll have them around for some time until there's a broader acceptance of mobile payments and a broader acceptance of, of cashless transactions and all. Although our pay stations we do have do not accept cash, we have phased that out. Now they do still accept credit and debit cards. But the, the pay stations are, I would say, an interim use that we'll have for a while. But ideally, everything will be mobile-based in the future where you drive to Stanford, you use a mobile app, you pay for your parking that way. Uh, there's no need to have these machines out in the field. That's an interim situation right now. And like a lot in the parking industry, everything we've been doing is interim. It goes away after some point. So, you know, we're in the same boat. But I still think, you know, until you know, you've got someone coming in from a, a part of the country or another country where they don't know mobile payments, you can't expect them to just use that exclusively yet. But in the future, I think that will be the case and uh, the need for us to have these, uh, these vaults out in the field will go away and, and we'll really just go to mobile payment. We do have mobile payment today with Park Mobile that works really well, but it's not exclusive yet. Yeah, that was, I know we're seeing a shift in that in a lot of cities and I don't know if that's starting to hit the universities, but the whole pay with more than just one app, you know, a lot of these people coming to visit their children and grandchildren, they may have an app that they use in their city, but it's different than the one you use. And so we're all trying to figure out a way to pay by any app. We'll see that more in the future. Yeah, I think it's, it's, a, it's sort of like parking's like transit right now where every location has its own payment processes and capabilities. And so when you go from city to city, you know, you may have been used to using one mobile payment app here, but they don't have it somewhere else. And much like with transit, if I travel to another city, I can't use my Clipper card in, say, Washington, D.C. or in Seattle. I have to get whatever their card is there. And at some point, I hope that goes away. I think other parts of the world have, have moved to uh, mobile device payment options that allow that more seamless process. We're not quite there yet in the United States. It may be a while. So you have to provide the means for people to pay that work, given what we've got to work with. But ideally, it would be really awesome if everybody who drives and chooses to park had the mobile payment apps on their phone, just like they have Google Maps, just like they have their email app. They all have the pay by phone, park mobile apps on their phone, and they're ready to go wherever they're happening to need to drive and park. Uh, that would make certainly parking operators like me, their lives a lot easier because we wouldn't have to ensure those folks have access to our parking system. They would have it already built in on their phone. What were some lessons learned or uh, what tips would you give for someone that's considering ripping out the gates? Well, we, we were fortunate because we were primarily gateless. We only had a handful of places that, that had gates. But, you know, I, I, think, I think there is some confusion at the front end. Uh, but then, you know, in a, in a university environment, you're, you're primarily dealing with people who uh, become habitualized to how they interface with the campus because the, the bulk of the population are employees and students who are there all the time and come and go every day. So they pretty quickly learn the drill and, get, get, you know, get used to it as long as the system is working for them and that, and that sort of thing. So, you know, initially, yeah, it took, it took some time to get folks used to the fact that 
you know, they weren't going to have this permit in their car anymore. They didn't have to come to the parking office to get anything with parking. You know, we, we closed our retail counter back in June and we still have people looking for us on campus and we left back in July. So it's, we're still going through that awkward phase of transition and getting our campus used to the fact that uh, when they need to do business with us, uh, that needs to be done via the phone or online with the computer or mobile device. We have become what I like to call the Amazon of, transport- of transportation services at a university, or maybe even a better analogy is Netflix, where it's online, it's seamless, there's no expiration, it just keeps going until you choose to end it. And so it's difficult, I think, for our community as a whole to get fully embraced to that, but they're beginning to. And I think and as time goes on, people will get used to that. But to have parking exist from a payment and permitting standpoint completely in the ether and in the cloud is not normal and isn't the usual, but we're pioneering it at Stanford and I hope others can learn from us and take advantage of the fact that we've, we're pioneering this and eventually move in the same direction. I know other peers at other universities are beginning to do this as well. They're realizing the, the money they're spending on equipment and uh, managing that equipment is, is not necessarily uh, something they want to continue to do. And so they're looking at how can they become similar to how we've, we've already become. And we'll see how this eventually spreads across the, the parking industry. You guys are smack dab in Silicon Valley with a lot of tech-minded, progressive people. Do you think any university and, and any environment can do this Netflix uh, of parking and be all online? And, or is this something you think that would only work in select cities? I think it's more the latter, Isaiah. I think, I think your, each, each university environment is unique. So good example is we were, we were at Harvard back in June. They hosted the IB Plus group, and it was great to, to catch up with all those folks and everything. And I was talking to, to, my, to my friend John Nolte about this and some of the things he's been working on. And he said, I'd love to do what you've done, Brian, but I'm, I'm in the middle of a city. I've got to manage not just uh, access to my parking, but who gets to use it. We're not allowed to sell parking to the public. We're only allowed to sell parking for Harvard purposes and business. And that's a unique condition that they have there at Harvard. And so that requires them to sort of manage access for that reason. And if that were to change, maybe their, their rationale would change. But, you know, they've got to have a way to keep the public out of their facilities so that only Harvard business folks come in to their parking garages so they, they conform to those rules. I don't have that issue at Stanford. But then again, I'm not really a buddy against much public use of my parking other than for Stanford. We're kind of buffered from the world a little bit. And so I don't have that as a concern. I think campuses that are in more urban environments where where does the campus end and where does the city begin? I think they may struggle with trying to go gateless uh, because they don't want their facilities to be inundated with, with folks who are taking up the space they need for their own populations. But in certain cases, I do think it can work and maybe in certain parts of their campus it can work, but you can't just apply these things you know, with a broad brush. It's got to be looked at very specifically and, and have it meet the needs of that particular location. Uh, and I think Stanford not just because we're in the Silicon Valley, although I do think that helps a little bit, but our general setting of, of being this sort of park university with large open spaces buffering us from the surrounding community, you know, I don't have a lot of uh, folks coming to park at Stanford and then going somewhere else. It's just not an issue I worry about uh, because we just don't have that geographic concern. 
you're right. I mean, it's not one size fits all. You need the gates to control in a lot of environments. And, and our hospital has gates. Yeah. You know, they still have gates because they need to ensure that they have particular parking spaces for their patients and visitors so that their employees and contractors don't take up all that parking. So I get that and I appreciate that. And, and so, you know, they've got a unique set of conditions there that, that require them to have some type of access control. In the future, would it be great if we could figure out a way to have that not be the case? Yes. And hopefully in the future, we figure out what that looks like. Uh, we've had Gary Means on the podcast before. He's actually in the middle of piloting a gateless garage. It's going well for him. But I call him the uh, hard, hardest working man in parking. He's just always involved in different committees and groups and boards. Yeah. But man, and Gary's I, great. I, yeah, I don't know. But I think you might, you're, you're, you're getting up there, man. So IPMI, ACT, you got a lot going on. CAP, well, I guess how long have you been on the IPMI board? So I was first elected in 2014. So I'm going on year five, been elected three times, if I remember. And I transitioned from serving on ACT's leadership group to IPMIs in around that time frame in 2014. It's been great. I think the folks that are involved in IPMI's leadership and the committees are some of the best people I've ever gotten to be around and meet. And certainly going through the CAP program, you know, that's how I got to meet you and others that I still have interactions with and learn from every day. And, you know, I think that's been certainly a, a nice added treat to being involved in the parking industry is to uh, have gotten involved with, this, with IPMI in particular and all the work that, that they do. Uh, it's just great people helping each other and learning from each other and just trying to push our industry forward. And that's awesome. And there's so much work and energy that comes from the volunteers that work on the committees and certainly the folks that, that I work with on the board and the executive committee. I mean, we, none of us get paid. None of us get anything out of this financially. We all do it because we want to help each other. We want to help the industry and we want to keep things moving in a positive direction. And when that is the ethos of the organization, you can see the benefit that that entails and, and what's come of that and all the uh, value adds that the organization has been able to do. So, and it comes from people like Gary and it comes from people like uh, Romy and, and comes from people that are involved in the, in the organization for a long time and continue to push that work ethic and that, that position with new board members. And, and so I, I'm honored to be on the, on the board. Uh, I, I, I welcome the opportunity to work, continue to work on it and, and to be a part of it. And I, I hope that other folks feel the same way that they get involved and continue to, to be involved with the organization. Yeah, I was working with the, I think it's called the isometrician. They were helping create this kind of survey for job description for CAP. And she said that, you know, she sent this survey out to all the IPMI parking professional membership. And she works with lawyer associations, dental associations, engineers, and they usually get like two or 5% response rate on surveys like this. And she said, parking industry, I can't remember the stats, but it was 60, 70% of members had responded. And she just, she said, she's never seen anything like that. And I don't know what's, what's in us as an industry, but we're a select kind of a, a breed that likes to help, likes to volunteer, likes to get involved, collaborative. But yeah, I think there's some stats to back that up. I hadn't heard that kind of statistics, but I, I certainly anecdotally would 100% agree with that. In my opinion, my humble opinion, I thought you wrote the best chapter in the book, A Guide to Parking, the IPMI uh, book. 
And then the sustainability in parking, you wrote a chapter as well, the MPA IPMI a joint publication. So I guess, would you agree with my uh, opinion there that, that you wrote the best chapter? Well, sure. Cause we wrote that together. You know, <laughs> that was a joint Mao Shaw production that, you know, will lead it to being the best chapter in the book anytime that happens. So yeah, I totally agree with that. You know, I, 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 I thoroughly enjoyed working with you on those efforts. You know, it's not easy to put together a chapter and and to co-author it, you know, we hadn't really worked together on something like that before, but I knew uh, working with you, uh, that was going to be a, a great opportunity to, to get something done at a high level. And, uh, you know, it, it's turned out that way. So, yeah, I, I would love to do another chapter with you. And, you know, I, one of the ideas I've had, and, and when you told me you were doing this podcast and I got to listen to it a few times, is wouldn't it be cool to do one live at IPMI next year and have this type of um, conversation with with uh, folks and you know have another uh, collaborative effort at least between you and I and maybe others uh, you know I just think your contributions to the industry have been tremendous we are lucky to have you uh, in our group and and to be continuing to push the innovation and the embracing of, of new ways of communicating and new ways of interfacing uh, I think I think we are extremely fortunate that you're involved in our group and and that you are willing to do these things like this podcast and other things you've been involved in. I, I, I just, I think, I just think it's tremendous. And I'm honored that you allowed me to be on this podcast. I think it's, it's great. I, I fully support it and I hope it continues to, to do well. No, man, it's, it's the pleasure has been all mine and working with you and man, you're making me blush, but uh, you guys can't see that on the, on the podcast, thankfully, but Hey man, let's do it live, live interview next year's IPMI. I, I've, I've learned in my career to never say no. I, I, I may yep. have to start. <laughs> Changing that mentality soon, <laughs> pulled in so many di- different directions. But it was like, hey, would, Isaiah, would you like to write a write an article for a book? This is quite a while ago. I was like, man, I was like, only if you let me write it with a really smart guy, you know. So they paired me up with you, and yeah, we we thought we did pretty well working together. But no, thank you so much for again for all you do for your leadership with IPMI and the universities that you've worked with over the years. Thanks for being on the podcast, Brian. We really appreciated having. You. I, I, it was my honor and pleasure, and I'll, I, I'd do it anytime you'd ask me to. All right, man. Have a great week. Appreciate you. All right. Thank you. To our listeners, thank you so much for listening to another episode of The Parking Podcast. Please leave us a review and tell a friend about our show. It would mean a lot. This has been a production of Synchronicity Media, produced by me, Isaiah Mao. Our music and score is by Zona. Our show art and design is by the talented Allison Gilly. You can follow us on social media at The Parking Podcast, or you can find our website with bonus content at parkingcast.com. Thanks for listening. We'll see you in two weeks. Hey, Mal Shaw Productions. I, I like that. Yeah, man. <laughs> Are you ready for your turn in the spotlight? IPMI is now accepting submissions to present at the 2020 IPMI Conference and Expo and for its 2020 awards. Learn more and apply at parking-mobility.org.